Welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. I'm here today with an absolutely wonderful, light-filled guest, Crystal Ann Compton. So Crystal is a spiritual teacher and intuitive channel. She is the founder of the spiritual community, the Light Shine Lab, and co-founder of the Light Shine Spiritual Academy. Welcome, Crystal Ann. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so excited. I just can't wait to get into all the things with you. Oh, we're going to get into all the things and we're going to be talking about healing and timelines and how healing is a spiral and developmental stuff and mm, just all kinds of stuff. Juicy, 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 juicy. And before we go there, I would, I always like to start at the beginning. I always like to start with like, tell me your story. Tell me what it was like to be a sensitive person. How did you know you were sensitive? Like, what was the journey? When did you claim the term like empath or highly sensitive person or intuitive? Like, let's start at the beginning. Absolutely. Okay. Well, it really is the beginning because I was born and raised in Hawaii, just like my father. He was born and raised in Hawaii. And specifically, I was born in Maui, and I was just born into a very magical kind of place. And my father was into the Hawaiian gods, and he saw spirits and absolutely everything. And in the Hawaiian way, that's, that's the way we think, like the rock or the pohaku, it has a spirit. Mm-hmm. The turtle has a spirit. The volcano has a spirit. And so I kind of just grew up connected in that way to a very magical kind of universe. My first memory as a child isn't my mom or my dad or Maui. It's actually talking to two tree people who used to hang out in a banyan tree outside of my bedroom window. And I would sit kind of in the middle of my bedroom in this sunbeam and I would talk to them telepathically, which, you know, it was all natural for me. I didn't know there was anything strange about that. And the cool thing was that my mom and dad were both pretty intuitive. I would say very intuitive, especially my mother. And so when I would come to them and talk to them about, you know, I'm seeing colors around people or there's a weird shape I'm seeing around you or I'm talking to these beings, they never made me feel like an other. They never made me afraid of what was happening. They were really able to give me some context and infrastructure, which helped me then to navigate. So I I never had to shut it down or shut it off. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And I'm just thinking like, How much further were you able to get so much earlier than those of us who had to spend decades of our early life basically like unlearning the idea that our gifts were bullshit or that Mm -hmm. this was all hooey and where we had to overcome, like where we just had to even claim our voice. You came into this life born in this magical place with people who were validating and acknowledging this. So did you get the class, like pretty much everybody that I talked to, like one of the things that like, I would say that unfortunately about at least so far, maybe 97% of the podcasts and actually considering that I haven't, maybe at this point I've gotten that many podcasts done, but anyway, (laughs) Like a very substantial portion of the podcast, the message that they were told as children was that you're too sensitive, you're overreacting, you're taking it too personally, that you've got an overactive imagination, you're making shit up, and that, you know, essentially like this is not not real. And so I'm hearing that was not your experience. No, it wasn't my experience. However, at the same time that my parents were really cool about these very natural abilities, which I would say we all have. They were also substance abusers, and there was a lot of abuse that was happening that just started ramping up, you know, all my childhood. My father Mm. was a very physically abusive person. He was very verbally abusive, which was interesting because 
looking back, he was also one of the most um, intuitive and intelligent people that I that I knew. So he was such a paradox in my life. But one thing I will say about people who live in deep trauma is that it can actually enhance your intuition. I mean, before my father ever got home at night, I knew what kind of night it was going to be. I knew I could feel the energy of that. And I did that very naturally. Um, but at the same time, because the trauma was really acute, okay, and we were also living in, situ in a situation that was really bad, like we were extremely poor, we didn't have running water, sometimes we didn't have electricity, so it, it was always hard growing mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was sort of expected to just sit over there and not comment on my bad behavior, like, and so... I was feeling, but I was not able to express. And so there was kind of an interesting thing that was happening. But by the time I was 13 or 14 years old, um, my friend was eighth grade. She invited me to her church, which was a Pentecostal church. You know, these are the snake wranglers, honey. These are uh -huh. the people speaking in tongues. These are the people oh, yeah. prophesying. So a very psychic church, as it turns very out. Very psychic church. Very and, psychic. And I went, so I went to, I went to seminary where it was a very interesting school because we were the oldest Protestant seminary in the country. And we were, we were a combination of the fourth largest contingent of Unitarian Universalists, which are not, we're, we're not even Christian. Right. And I was raised as UU. And then on the other side, we had the Pentecostals and the head of the theology department was Pentecostal. And this was before um, gay marriage had been legalized. This was a point where there was an incredible amount of contention. And what was interesting though, was like, the Pentecostals could sense the Holy Spirit in me and I could sense the Holy Spirit in them, but they're there. And, and so I completely agree with you. There is magic mm -hmm. among the Pentecostals. And yet there is also rigidity, <laughs> which is like and so much fear. Oh, I mean, there's a demon. So in everything. Much fear. <laughs> there's a demon. Yeah. Or, yeah. Well, I, my Holy everything. Spirit was, I, I used to joke that when I was in seminary and they would be like, they could smell the Holy Spirit on me. They could tell that I was, that I was, I was channeling it, but then they would immediately, I could feel them backpedal and be like, her Holy Spirit is contaminated. <laughs> and like, that was my joke was that I, you know, it was like my Holy Spirit was contaminated. Um, well, so. it's so interesting though, because I mean, I've, I've been through a long journey through Christianity and organized religion, but at the very tail end of that, I spent some time as a UU and mm -hmm. I was really, really attracted to that religion because everybody was so freaking smart. Everybody was thinking things through yes. like that scripture in the Bible where God says, come, let us reason together. Like, I think the Unitarian Universalists really understand, like, let's think it out, hash it out, work it out, look at it in different ways. And of course, ecumenical interfaith, there were so many things about uh, being a Unitarian that I loved, but I didn't stay long. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I came in and I came out. Well, and for me, I mean, my person, so I don't know if you've ever heard the joke about, you know, the Unitarian Universalists, you know, down in the South, it's like they they woke up one day and found a, a, a question mark burning in their lawn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and for me, my personal experience was that while on paper, my uh, what's called the espoused theology is very, very in alignment with Unitarian Universalism. The operational theology, which is how you actually experience and practice, is is was not quite congruous because hmm. we found that my spiritual practice and life experience was very much about sort of the somatic embodied spiritual yeah. experience. And Unitarian Universalism does tend to be very much up in the head. Yes. And so for me, as an adult, while I have will always have an incredible place in my heart for the U UUA, it didn't necessarily feel like it didn't land for me in my body. In the I, same, I way. love that, and I think that's what attracted me to Pentecostalism because that is a very embodied it's and embodied. Oh my gosh, yeah. you're in it, the flow of it. You're getting slain in the spirit. You know, it's yeah. You're popping up out of your pew, and you're going up, and you're getting healed. And so there's so much those the evidences were pouring through. And so as a young girl. I related to those evidences and I saw those in me. And because my family life was so problematic and really so abusive, I just, I kind of like, I bought into it, <laughs> lock, stock mm -hmm. and barrel. And I became a fundamentalist Christian. Now, Pentecostalism is also a literalist faith, meaning every single word in the Bible is true. I became a superstar at all of that. Like when I was 14 and 15, I was preaching in churches around the big islands. I went on to become a missionary to Fiji and Tonga and Samoa. And I was a worship singer, like I was into the whole thing until the moment 
like something happened in my church and these critical moments that I think all spiritual people who are serious about their spirituality ultimately experience, which is when the veils fall away, Mm -hmm. you know, and you say, oh, this is, this is just a man-made thing. This pastor, Mm -hmm. well, he's just a man and I don't like this anymore. You know, in my particular church at the time that I left was a Calvary Chapel, which was a charismatic a very misogynistic kind of male oriented women have to be in their place kind of a church. And I had just had enough. And so I left. And one thing I can say about this is that when you are so indoctrinated, inculcated, like you're in the system of this, it is so terrifying to just garner the courage to leave, especially Christianity, because there's like this fear of becoming an apostate or becoming demon possessed. And all I knew though, Jennifer, was that I wanted to get back to that little girl sitting in her bedroom, talking to tree spirits. Like, because by the time I made this decision to leave, which I was probably around 25, a lot of that had gone because I had so stridently put it into the structure of the church that the magic was gone. Mm. And I didn't feel connected to those things anymore. Mm -hmm. So the first intention I really had was, let me find my way back to that. And the doorway for that for me was Edgar Cayce. Now, Edgar Cayce was also a literalist. I think he was a Baptist. I forget which faith, but he came up in one of these literalist religions in Hopkinsville, uh, Kentucky. And, you know, when his intuitive faculties started coming online when he was an adult, he was terrified (laughs) because Mm -hmm. he's Mm -hmm. starting to bring through readings about past lives and about all this other stuff. And this is very unbiblical in terms of the religion, but he was brave anyway. And he's yeah. kept with it anyway. And so I used that as sort of the demonstration for me going forward. And this, yeah. this is when I started exploring. And this is when I started reconciling the aspects in me that have, had absorbed up like a little sponge, my father's rage, my mother's addictions, you know, like all these behaviors and patterns that I had taken on, like I had to get really clear about and start to work on. So that would have been my 20s and 30s and in my 50s now. Mm-hmm. So it's been a long road talking yes. about healing being a spiral. Yes. A lot of work. Oh, oh, just so much richness in everything that you're saying. And I want to pull something out because it is one of those things where the universe seems to be wanting to talk about this today because you mentioned trauma and the, you know, and how trauma can really contribute to our intuitive abilities. And it was interesting because I was having a conversation with somebody earlier where we were talking about a podcast and the possibility, like how we would approach a conversation. And they made the comment that um, empaths are formed in the fire of trauma and or forged in the fire of trauma. And I actually commented that I wasn't convinced that that's always the case because if, and what I said was, In my opinion, if that was the case, then everybody would be an empath because there's, you know, everybody experience there. Like, I mean, if you especially start looking at trauma, everybody's impacted by it. And so, you know, it's sort of, and Shay and I both were kind of like, wow, this is a really fascinating conversation. Like, this is a really curious topic of like, where is like, where does the relationship to trauma and being highly sensitive land? Like, you know, because it definitely feels like there's a connection, but I'm also not sure there's like any hard and fast rules about it. And so I just find it fascinating that as we're starting this conversation, it's like, here's the T word again. And here's that sort of that that question or that that possibility of how the need to be hypervigilant brings out a greater level of sensitivity. Yes. And this is something that I've contemplated as well and had some conversations with some enlightened people around. This idea in the Bible actually calls it refinement by fire, like just mm-hmm. going through some of these um, difficult things in life really does. It has the potential to, let's say, refine you. And I would say that some of the most powerful healers and inspirers and um, intuitive people that I have ever met have come out of like deep trauma, deep, yeah. deep trauma. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's because when this happens to us and it's always being offered, I believe, but it depends on how the trauma has changed you. But at some point we become aware of the fact, well, I got to heal this up. You know, I've got to, I, I can, the contrast of my behavior and my thoughts is so stark. I know that I've got to find my way back to 
what's peaceful and what's good. And so we make the decision to find out or find the way toward healing. And through this, we um, discover modalities, we amass knowledge, we meet people, we create our own system of healing, what works for us. And we just, we get so much information and energy, which we can then, as we're processing through our healing and moving out of it, which I would say it's, we're never done with it, but as we're moving, (laughs) moving out of it, now we can actually turn and help the next person. And the thing about people who have experienced trauma is that we have a specific vocabulary. We have a specific eyesight. Like I can recognize through listening to the way you're speaking and the words that you're using, whether you've come through trauma, whether you need a healing, whether there's something that's being offered for you. I can see when I look at people that they've been traumatized or that they're in the cycle of this. And so it does give us these extra abilities to serve at a higher level. But see, we can only really ever do that efficiently, compassionately when we have awakened to a certain degree. So I do think trauma is an agent for this, Mm -hmm, but I don't mm -hmm. think it's necessary for this. It's not an absolute, but it does, I think, maybe quicken the path toward this. Yes, I think I think that it tends to amplify Hmm. natural tendencies that are already there. And I absolutely have had the experience of intense experiences I think in some ways, it's like when we are willing to be present to the intensity of what we're experiencing, and we don't shut down the emotion, we, we show up and we are, are there for it, that emotional height, that it's heightened state of emotion allows us to access information and allows us to feel things in a way that sometimes if we're just like going through the motions we can just kind of like, I don't know, we can live our lives on autopilot. So, mm-hmm. it, and I love the fact that you are, you know, it's, as you said, it's not an absolute, it's not, it doesn't have to be this way. It just is a factor that can certainly contribute. Yes. And yeah. in my experience, it, it happens quite a lot, but let me just also say that You know, I believe in the archetype of the wounded healer. I think Mm -hmm. that there's a lot of people who have innate abilities in this way who don't actually move into it, step into it fully because, well, my shit's not all together. I still have these problems. And I am still, my father passed in 95. My mother passed in 2012. I am still dealing with my father. He shows up in the way that I treat my body. I've Mm. had longstanding issues with like eating disorders because of the way that he spoke to me. Mm. Um, I, you know, I I think you are an authority on being an empath. And, and I would say young in my younger years, I was able to be sensitive in that way, even though that was getting hammered out of me these days. And we kind of talked about it before I've so over-regulated myself, especially because I'm also a channel. And Mm -hmm. so I'm always dealing with these big, big energies, divine Mm -hmm. energies that must regulate themselves. And I must kind of stair step up and we meet somewhere in the middle. So I've got vibrational and emotional regulation down to the point where I feel really buffered from the onslaught of energy in the world right now. And I even asked you when you were on my podcast, like, is something wrong with me? Like, should I be more empathic? Because I have trained myself to feel very specifically. Yes, yes, yes. Well, and, and, you know, my personal experience over the last three years has been that there, I had calibrated myself to a particular level of buffering and very similarly, you know, I do really, I mean, that's part of the whole thing of the five steps of empathic mastery is that connect, which is the fourth step is like the universe abhors a vacuum. If you don't want to be absorbing all the negativity, then what you need to do is be chat, you know, accessing a power greater than yourself and connecting to something that fills your channel on a higher level. So I really, you are living what I am teaching in the sense of that is exactly what I believe. And I know for myself that, and largely, I think in my case, if my father was not one of the first 10,000 people to die from COVID, I probably would not have been so strongly whacked by the COVID stick the way that I have been. But I was... In my experience, when a parent dies, half your DNA goes to the other side. 
And something profound happens to your energy body that I was not prepared for, that I had no idea what was coming until suddenly I was waking up, you know, weeks before his death, feeling like I was plugged into an electric socket. Interesting. And and so, you know, I and as a result of that, I was sort of in a vulnerable state. And so I absolutely had the experience of having to recalibrate my you know, my buffer mm-hmm. in order to not be getting knocked around by the, by the turbulence and the fear and just all the craziness that's going on in the planet right now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's been acute for the last, I don't know, two and a half years. And I think yeah. that it's, um, <laughs> so we have, a, and we've spoken about this, but there's like a lot of empaths right now who don't know that they're empathic in nature, who are connecting to what's being offered. And that is just so overwhelming that um, by connecting it, feeling it, they're expressing it, they're contributing to it. So they are contributing to it. Contribute. You're co-creating at this point unconsciously, but you are co-creating it. So it is everybody's responsibility to check in with themselves and watch how they're running this energy in themselves and around themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. Well and I was working with somebody just the other day and we were we were doing some deep ancestral work and going back into the ancestral lines and um, and I was commenting about, you know, as we were looking at some of the trapped emotions and the things that had been keeping that that they had inherited from the patrilineal side. And I was like, huh, I wonder how now that we're releasing this particular set of cluster of like worry and lack of control and all of these other kinds of like, like fierce based stuff that they had inherited. I was like, how will this affect the way you relate to and interpret climate change, which is one of their personal, like, like hills to die on. And they were like, well, I hate to break it to you, but it's still going on. And I'm like, yeah. And what if you didn't have the emotional intensity? Like, what if you were not emotionally reacting to this? What if like, it's just, this is the reality, but we don't have to get carried away like a runaway train in the emotional distress about something that is dire and very serious, but like in some ways, like what if we could not be so emotionally jacked by situations that do need attention, that do need concern, that do need to be shifted, but we can do it in a way that is calmer, that is more grounded, that is more reasonable. Honey, <laughs> this is what we must figure out how to do. It is. Because there's a lot of online activism that is so effing toxic and negative and divisive and problematic. And people, I think, think that they're doing something helpful, um, but you're not. You're actually making it much, much worse. You're causing more problems. I think the only way we can solve any problem, especially these pressing ones, is to keep our orientation in the all that is, you can call that God, whatever you want, but keep our orientation in the divine while staying present in the body here Letting that be the thing that centers us and also animates us in our activism. It always has to come from love. If it is not love, then it's not eternal. If it is not love, then it's not going to work. You like what? What did Martin Luther King Jr. say? Like you cannot cast out hate with hate. You know you've got to cast it out with love. It's the only thing that works. And so we have so many people misdirected because they're. But see, there's there's a light aspect of this as well. They're upset for a good reason. Mm-hmm. There are things that I believe we incarnated right now to help to shift. Yes. But it is about the energy that you embody when you do the work. If what you're embodying, like St. Francis said, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. If that's not your orientation, then you're probably fucking something up. Let me just be frank. Mm-hmm. Okay. Preach, sister. Preach. And I just, I love, love, love the fact that we are talking about that intersection of connection to the greater to to greater source connection to that divine love and to that higher purpose like that awareness and simultaneously being embodied and taking action as an agent for that love and you know i think that one of the things that i see is that there are it seems like we're kind of in this divisiveness and this, you know, this cultural divide that we're this gap we're sitting with these days. It seems like there is there are so many people who are either in the fear mongering, 
but embodied activism, but from a place of fear and urgency and us versus them versus these other people who are like, it's just the ascension, just align with your angels and everything is mm-hmm. going to be amazing, where they're not necessarily contributing to the awareness of like, yeah, you have a body for a reason. What if we, and so what I love about what you were talking about here is the acknowledgement of the both instead of it's, you know, this way that some people tend to kind of go down the spiritual rabbit hole and totally dismiss or deny the body. So I really love how you are talking to both right here. Right. That's spiritual bypassing. And I mean, you incarnated as a human for a reason. And what I tell people is like, actually, as a soul, like on that meta level, you knew you were coming into a prison planet situation. (laughs) You knew you were coming into a situation that was very chaotic, but as a soul, you were so excited to do so. You're like, tag me in because I've got inherent gifts and talents. I have a message. I've got skills. I can come in and make a change. But you have to stay in the orientation of the soul in order to do that, which is like the the big gag, really, because we get here and we slowly get this amnesia and we forget who we are, why we're here. And then we get lost in the Maya of this particular reality. So but here's the thing about everything that's being offered on the screen of our life, like the fear, the hatred, all of the things that we're presently in. This is really just information that's being offered. Um, you make the final determination and choice whether you take that into yourself. You make the final determination and choice about what you're going to do with this information. It's always just an invitation to find the right way to respond. It's it's not necessarily a herald of everything's bad. It's Mm -hmm. an invitation to find out how you can transmute it into something that's good. So if we can take that kind of energetic charge away from, say, the nuclear war Armageddon that's looming over everybody, take that away and look at it as just information about what's happening on the planet right now. This correlates to something that's happening in you presently. In fact, all of us. This has something to do with all of us. Where can I bring in some alignment and activation in my own personal self that would have a direct response to that because everything is connected. Neville Goddard says, everything is just you pushed out. And if that's just me pushed out, then I have, I'm an agent of change for that, right? So mm-hmm. if I'm just looking at it from a neutral standpoint without allowing myself to react, I can say, okay, this is what I need to change in myself. This is what I need to change in my behavior. This is what I need to change in my community. And this is how we affect good change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, there's a really great scripture in the Bible, which I'm going to paraphrase. And it is, um, we are aliens. We are not of this world. We are to be in it, but not of it. Yes. Which I really, really love that idea. We are aliens. We're, we're divine beings. Jesus said you are all gods. That's who we really are. But we wanted to come into this Nintendo game, Mario and Luigi, and we wanted to play. <laughs> so here we right. are. What are right. we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? Well, and I find, you know, it's so, it's like how, how important it is to have profound compassion for the human ego, the human being, the body and the ego that have that amnesia that are caught up in Maya and are going through this. And sometimes I hear people who are talking about like, you know, it's just a game, you know, your soul chose this, this is the experience. And where it's almost like there's like this dismissal, or this in, you know, did not like, like that there just isn't a lot of compassion for the fact that it's hard mm-hmm. for the part of us that doesn't have the like, like, it's sort of like we're thrown into the game. We read the rules before we get here. We know what we're signing up for. And then we're thrown into the game. And suddenly it's like, wait a second, what are the rules of this game? I don't understand. And I mean, in some ways, it's kind of like part of the fun of the game is learning the rules and figuring it out and playing with the puzzle. Like so our soul thinks it's awesome. But our little tiny, you know, the cell that we are in the body of this planet right now sometimes may not think it's so awesome. Absolutely. And it's and it's not. And so that that seeming duality always exists. But when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is inside of you, how I take that is the apparatus that ever connects you to the source of all things, to include your soul that sent you here to, to include your higher self, higher mind that exists right inside of you. 
And so if we found ourselves profoundly off course and in states of reaction and super angry and upset, we have what we need inside of ourselves to get back to center, get back to a space of peace and get back into connection with spirit. And so, yes, it is hard, but there's a way out. Yes, it is hard, but you have to take some radical responsibility for how you're contributing and you have to figure out how you can turn down the noise and all of the dials of this world, get into your inner kingdom and find your way back to source. Mm. And we all have that. Nobody can take that away from us. Nobody also can tell you what it is. Nobody also can turn it on or off for you. This is something inherent to you. This is the gift of the incarnation. Yeah. Would you give us like a real kind of like, so here you are, you, you know, you're, you are moving along and all of a sudden you discover that a piece of work, you know, you come around the spiral and there it is again. (laughs) Yeah. Could you give an example, like a real-time example of like something where you've worked the, your way through this? Yes. Boy, could I ever. So let me pick one. Yeah. <laughs> um, one that's been showing up recently for me is this issue of a curse that I feel my mother placed on me non-intentionally. She did this by repeating the words of her mother, who was repeating the words of her mother. And it was this weird idea that everyone in the maternal line, every woman in the maternal line dies early. Now, wow. I don't, everyone dies early um, in their 50s usually. And mm-hmm. I don't know what would possess my mother to tell me that from the time that I was a child. Maybe she was worried about it herself. I don't know. But it's been this thing that always comes around. And it is because it was spoken over me at such a young age, it's really deep in there. Yeah, because, you know, from the age of zero to seven, we are in a trance. We're in a hypnagogic trance. Mm -hmm. We're just soaking it up into the very essence of who we are. And we're still carrying so much of that around to this day. And that is one thing that continues to come around for me and continues. I continue to observe it in all kinds of different ways. For example, if I'm waking up in at three in the morning, which I often do, which a lot of psychics do, by the way, yeah. waking up at three in the morning, I immediately kind of go into this weird narrative about my body, about my health and oh, how many years do I have left? Like it's the echoes of my mother are still inside of me. And so of, of course, that's just my prompt to do some work around that at three in the morning, which I find myself doing, but it shows up in so many different ways. And I've cut the cords. I've done the ho'oponopono. I am conscious to it. I understand it is there, but it is always coming around. And even if I think, okay, I solved that one. I've released that back into the ether to be transmuted by the universe. Oh, six months here, it comes back right back again. You know, and, and mm-hmm. it can show up in the form of eating disorder narratives, which I still struggle with, like the, the, the sound of that, the feeling of that in my body, the panic of that. Um, and I think it'll probably be with me until I'm gone. And I Mm -hmm. think some of these things, that's just the way that it is. And you have to have the tools and the resources for yourself to deal with them when they pop up. It's not bad that it is popping up. It doesn't mean you failed at at, um, healing it. It just means there's another layer to it. And so now it's bubbling to the surface. And guess what? You're going to heal that too. You're going to speak truth to that lie. And then in about a month, it might come back around in another form. And so to cultivate a predisposition of thank you. As opposed to, oh, fuck, here it is again. How come I can't get away from this? You know, mm. that's been one of the things that I've, I've really trained myself to do. It's just like, okay, I'm grateful. Oh, I get to go deeper. And it mm-hmm. does, it's, it's uncomfy. I don't yeah. like it. But sometimes that's the best work that we're doing. That's when we're alchemizing all the things is when we're yes. uncomfy. When we're uncomfy. Well, and I mean, when we're comfortable, we're not necessarily motivated to deal. Right. And, um, oh, you know, I... As you were speaking about this particular curse, and I'm just, I, I, I just, I kind of, kind of couldn't help but kind of look, and I'm like, wow, that goes way back. Like it looks to me like mm-hmm. I'm just imagining like there is such a generation, like multi generational, like this is this is yep. it yep. didn't start with you. Oh no, but when my so my dad's dad, my grandfather died when he was like 57 years old, and my father was in many ways believed that he was going to die fairly young as well. And it was really interesting. And he didn't die until he was like 86 years old. And what was interesting was that I think for him, crossing the Rubicon of 57 Mm -hmm. 
like there was a sense of relief. Like when he kind of made it past that benchmark, it was almost like he was like, oh, I didn't like, like I didn't get drafted. Like I didn't get the call up. And he, in many ways, kind of was able to let that curse drop because he like once he hit the milestone and surpassed it, it if that stopped being an issue. And I wonder mm-hmm. if is there an age at which you can be like, I made it. I got past this. Well, uh, one would hope so. My brother also had something like this. And uh, my father passed when he was my age, 54. And so when my brother hit 54, which is a year ago, he's like, I, I made it. I'm, I, yep. He had this kind of monkey on his back, like this little shadow that said, well, I mean, are you going to, is it going to happen mm-hmm. to you too? There's no reason for this either. No. It must just be the energetic imprint of the event itself or the just the energy of my dad's impact on our lives. But he feels that way. Yeah. I haven't gotten there yet. It's curious to me because my mom espouses like all of her life and she lived to 68, which is still quite young, but she made it past her 50s. Right. So right. That's, that's a demonstration that that's, this is a lie. Right. But she still carried it with her. Yeah. So. I mean, I can, I understand that it's, it's, it's not true. I understand that this is um, an ancestral pattern. Mm-hmm. I understand that this is not mine, right. you know, but, right. but because it was given to me at such an early age, such it's an early still age. being sloughed off snakeskin, sloughed off snakeskin. So, <sighs> well, and you know, you were talking about like, we are in a state, we're in a trance state for the first seven years of our life. And I've been really been spending a lot of time looking at and reading about attachment and, you know, and especially about the fact that our nervous systems are not capable Mm -hmm. of self-regulating until we are at least toddlers and that we rely primarily on our mother's body and our mother to regulate our nervous system. And it's sort of like just the ramifications of that mean that we are not forming our own, like, it's like our we are receiving the input from other people for a substantial period of our early childhood development mm-hmm. that deeply affects how we experience and perceive and relate to the world. You know, and then when you have a mother with generational curses and also with, um, you know, I'm imagining I mean, addiction and probably mental health issues. It's like, woohoo, party. Right. And again, these are, these are things that your child will probably carry with them for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because, um, I'm wondering what you think about this, but my, my daughter, so I've, I've had this longstanding issue with eating disorders, as I've discussed, I don't practice, but it's in my head still. Yeah. Um, but boy, did I try to keep that from my kid? I never talked about it. My mom talked about it almost once. I'm like, "Mm." we don't talk about that, you know? And I was always like super vigilant about how I spoke about myself and my body, things like that, like super pendulum swing to this side, like overcompensation. Mm. And my daughter still ended up with such similar, because of the ancestral patterning of it all, but she still has the same issues that I had, even though I thought I was doing the right thing and trying to be conscious, I still passed it down. Sometimes I wonder if some of this is karma, meaning it's just going to happen. You signed up for it. You got to deal with it. And, but I, what was I reading? I was reading, oh, in um, The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And he was saying- Oh, one of my favorite books. Such a good book. Such a good book. He was saying, essentially, you're ignorant if you prefer to listen to what somebody says as opposed to their energy. Mm. And so as a child, she was only listening to my energy. You know, she was only listening to what I was feeling about myself and who I felt myself to be. And the bigger uh, being that she is, who's, that stands just outside of the, the human body, is always listening. And that always transmission listening. is taking place. And she received it. And now she's got it. And so the, the hope is that we can break the chain with her. Well, and I really, I mean, when it comes to body image and eating disorders and women, I also really think this is not just ancestral, generational, inherited. This is also culturally. Mm-hmm. We as and as you know, any level of sensitivity as a female, it's like we are indoctrinated into all of this body image stuff, all of this diet culture, all of this eating disorder stuff. So I would even wonder like at what point do 
like despite our attempts to raise our daughters differently, do they still get impacted by culture and by society? We, you know, and I totally hear you. Like my personal experience was I was raised by a, a mother with definite, like, I mean, she hid sugar, she hid candy, she hoarded candy. She was always very thin. In hindsight, I actually think my mom had a fair bit of anorexia. She was very controlling with food and had, and was constantly like looking at her body and complaining about her belly and talking about how fat she was. And my mother was probably like, post-pregnancy, probably the most my mother ever weighed in her entire life might've been 140 pounds. But on average, my mother has weighed most of her life somewhere between like 105 and 115 pounds. Wow. Like my mom is not a large Mm -hmm. woman, but her perception of herself was like, I grew up with such body distortion. And so coming into the world, like you know, eating disorder was the lens through which my recovery started and my journey of healing started. And, um, you know, but with, we have a, I have a fairy goddaughter, like I've a goddess daughter that um, is now in her late twenties, early thirties. And me and her mom and many of the women around her, we made such an effort to not indoctrinate her into the the body loathing. And as a kid, it was really wonderful to see how she didn't have all of it, but at the same time, she still like had, you know, really weird eating quirks and, you know, and just like, and now, I mean, it's interesting. She's a very slender person at this point in time, but it's kind of like, I can see the benefit of the effort we made, but I can also see how profoundly it's almost inescapable, as you were saying. It's like, this is just the karma. It's going to be what it's going to be. Right. I think it's yeah. also part of the matrix. It's built into it. I think yeah. that it all we can really do as parents and people is to provide the counterbalance. And, you know, it's for me, it ended up not just being about my mom should have said it. My mom should have called it out. She should have. I should have let her. We should have had a conversation about that. Like it, there should be we should bring the light into it. And I should have told her how I struggled with it. And I think so making sure that you're not displaying the behavior is important, but also having these open conversations about the world that we live in and what is happening and what is showing up on social media and on our television sets and how that is not real. This is not real. And this is why that's very important as well. And I think Mm -hmm. so many women are wrapped up. You know, I thought I developed my um, eating disorder in my mid twenties, which is kind of late for me. Yeah. Kind of late. This one. The year my dad died. So there's no, ah, there we no, go. Yeah, yeah. No coincidences. But I thought to myself, well, by the time I hit 30, you know, it's no problem. And then I thought, well, by the time I'm 35 and then 40 and then 45, I'm like shocked at how many older women have this problem because it's oh. associated with a young teenage kind of a thing. But uh, many, 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 many of us have this issue still. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I had a friend whose mother, you know, and and she and I met each other around recovery from bulimia and eating disorder stuff. But like her mother, I mean, she was living, living with her mother and where if she would go home to her mother until her mother basically like developed dementia and sort of couldn't think for herself anymore. Um, This was a woman who was you know, engaging in very disordered eating patterns. And she was wafer thin, skinny as a bird. And like her behavior was really crazy. She would like buy all kinds of chocolate and she would chew it up and spit it out in Kleenexes and throw it in the trash. So there was just like, so she wasn't even vomiting if it were not for the fact that she developed dementia, which prevented it which in some ways, this is true with my mother as well. Like my mom no longer cares about her body and her weight because she can't, she's so demented. She can't, she's no longer perceives herself. And in a way, I'm really grateful for that for her because she's free of the scrutiny that I witnessed her putting herself through for 70 years, like more than 70 years. So yeah, it's not this idea that it's it's relegated to young women and girls mm-hmm. no it is like and and the generation i really think from like depression era to now more so than any other time in culture women have been struggling with this eating disorder stuff 
A hundred percent. My, yeah. my, um, husband's grandmother is, she just turned 92, but I mean, you walk in her, she'll see her daughter. Oh, you're getting fat. <laughs> just like your daughter is 72. It doesn't, but this is the, this is the way that she's always been. This is the way that a lot of women have been for a long time. This is the way so many women are in our own head. You know, and this is how we feel ourselves to be. My grandmother, my father's mother was born in 1908. And I remember the greatest glowing compliment that I ever got from my grandmother. Didn't, you know, like, no, like, oh my God, I'm so proud of you from graduating from, from art school. I'm so proud of you for deciding to go to graduate school and do this thing. Like none of that. The most like praise, a glowing praise and accolades I ever received from her was when I starved myself down to uh, like 123 pounds, lost my period because my body is, I've got a very like sturdy, dense body that does not do well that thin. Like I literally lost my period, but my grandmother was like, she, it was like, you have arrived now. Now you are, now you are legitimate. Now you are acceptable. Now you are worthy of my love because Mm -hmm. you are thin enough. And she was somebody who, I mean, actually, I mean, this is a woman born in 1908 and I witnessed her struggle with, with her body image and with her weight her entire life. So yeah. And I think you're, we're passing it on ancestrally. Yeah. I think this is a curse that we are given and then we self-impose, we languish under. I think that this is why we have the body positivity movement. I think, you know, there's always unhealthy aspects of every movement, but I think the divine impulse that is seeking to emerge through a movement like this is for us to just love ourselves exactly how we are. doesn't mean we don't want to get healthy or we don't want to do this or that, but we want to start with loving ourselves and seeing ourselves as worthy and valuable. And that's the message of something like this, which is a new thing. This is a new thing in the last few years that the kids are coming up with. And thank goodness for these thought leaders, because we need it. I'm 54. I still need to hear that, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So good. Oh, so, so, so good. I am amazed at how quickly this, I'm not amazed in some ways at how quickly this conversation has been going by because, um, you know, you and I can talk. (laughs) 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 And so I'm just like, you know, we've got a little bit of time left in the conversation and I'm just thinking, where do we want to go from here? What feels like I would be, I will kick myself if I don't say this thing, if I don't talk about this. Oh, gosh, Um, that there is always this path of light that returns you in an embodied way to the embodied knowledge of who it is that you really are. And even if life seems very chaotic and painful, and I think a lot of people are suffering for a variety of reasons, even though that is true, at the same time, there is this path of light that will return you to this feeling state of knowing who you are, but also what you're always connected to, Jennifer, like we're always connected to the all that is, the creator of all things. And again, back to this apparatus that exists inside of us, this this channel that we can always avail ourselves of, and nobody can take this away from us. We have infinite resources at all times. It really does depend on where you're pointing your consciousness and your interest. If all you're looking at every day is what they're bitching about on Twitter or what the news is saying on CNN and whatnot, then that's where your consciousness is going mm-hmm. and that is what mm-hmm. grow, is growing in your life. And so I think the, the challenge, which is not a word I like, I think the, um, the call is to find the your way. The you invitation. Yes, yeah. the invitation is to turn inward, use that channel that exists inside of you and get into all of these beautiful celestial resources that we all have. And truly, you are far more powerful than you think you are right now. You are far more important. You also have everything you need right now to do the thing that you came to do. You wouldn't have sent yourself here if you didn't already know how to do it. So you can do it. It is good. You're good. And all is well. Truly, I know we're in it. It sucks. But all from the meta, all is well. And you are fully supported by spirit. Yeah. 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 So if somebody was listening to this and they, on one level, their, their soul just is like, yes, everything you are saying is true. This feels, this really, really, really lands for me. And 
they are, but their ego, their mind, their body is like, but how do I even begin to do this? Where do we start? Hmm. Okay. (laughs) So you have to start by probably for somebody like this, by filling your mind with things that are good food. You know, the Bible says, think on these things that are lovely and that are good, a good report. Neville Goddard would speak about an information diet, like starting to dial down those knobs. What you already know is toxic. Look, you already know it's toxic. Okay. If you're watching the Real Housewives of wherever, you know that's toxic. So making some choices and decisions to dial down some of these things and take in as that counterbalance or that counterpoint, these eternal things. You could read books, you could join study groups, you could find other people of like mind, fellowship with those people um, and just feel what that feels like. But but here's an even simpler thing to do. If you want to know what God feels like, go outside, truly. I believe Gaia is an archangel. I believe the energy frequency of the earth is an archangel. And so if you want to feel what that high vibration source energy frequency is like, like take off your shoes, go stand in the grass, go climb a mountain, go jump in the ocean and just be with nature. I think it was St. Paul who said, all of nature bears witness to the glory of God. This will get you connected. So here's what you want to do. You want to hook into what it feels like. When you can find ways to hook into what love feels like or what God feels like, then you can start to do that more, have that more, and then this will begin to change you more. Mm, mm, mm. And, you know, I have a very similar experience of if I need to make a shift, the fastest and most effective way I can make a shift is to get my butt outside, Mm -hmm. put my feet on the ground, and look up at the sky. and. For me, I, you know, I totally love this idea of the earth. Gaia is an archangel. And my experience is then we are simply cells in the body of this archangel. We are part of her. We are not separate from her. We are not individual. But And just for me, looking up at that sky and getting a sense of the vastness and getting perspective about how puny human experience is. We are so caught up in our human drama and our human story. And yet there is so much, there's like, it is such a small, like, it's just a small band of frequency in the grand scheme of things. So right there with you, right there with you. (laughs) Well, at the same time, you're a divine being, like you're divine, you're greater than all of this. So that's what the Kabbalion talks about. I think the quote in the Kabbalion is, study the monad to understand the archangel. Mm-hmm. Like the the simple thing will always lead you to the greater thing. And yes, yes, we are these simple human incarnations. We're small, but that leads us to this, this more expansive knowledge of all that is possible. And as the above, creation. As above, so below. As Correct. Within, so without. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. And that, you know, even like with tapping, one of the things that I will find is start with what you know. Follow the thing. If you feel a twinge in your right hip, then start by just showing up and tuning into that and listen, and mm-hmm. it will open the universe for you. But just start yes. with that first thing and see where it takes you. I love it. This has been such a great conversation. <laughs> this has been such a delicious, so delicious conversation. Yes. So I have a second question for you. Yeah. So my, and I like to ask everybody this and I'll, I'll sort of, pre, I'll, 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 I'll kind of reframe it or preface it by saying that I really believe that one of the things that this empathic, that the empathic mastery show does is that it jumps through time and that this show and this frequency, this broadcast is like a, a fat piece of fabric in the fabric of time. And that this conversation is a place in the in the fabric that is folding over on itself. And so the you of now is also connecting to or folding over. You and I are connecting to the you of a very different time when you were struggling, when you were young, when you were really in it. And that right now you can broadcast back to her exactly what she needs exactly what she needs to know that we are giving we are sending her the messages that she has that she needed so that she can be who she is today so 
What are you going to tell her? First of all, I love you. Second of all, you are love. I would tell her that she is not alone. I would remind her of that story of Elijah when he turns around and he sees all of the angels assembled on the mountains just for him, just for him as he's running in fear from Jezebel. He's scared. And he realizes, oh my goodness, this whole time you've been with me? And that I believe is real. And that is something different or younger or smaller Crystal would have loved to hear, especially when she was so frightened and so scared and didn't know what was going to happen tonight or what was going to happen tomorrow. She was not alone. She's surrounded by angels. Mm, mm, mm. Oh, Crystal, little Crystal, you are so loved. You are so lovable. And you are surrounded by angels. Thank you. Bringing mm. me to tears. You're bringing me to tears. She always loves to hear it. <laughs> Ellen, I, I sincerely believe, and I've had these experiences a few times in my own life, but I sincerely believe that there are moments where we can send the message back. That is the message. It's the pivot. It's the peace that we needed. And so I just, I sincerely believe we have just sent a transmission of medicine back to young Crystal Ann so that she can become who she is today. Do you remember when you were younger, having a sense that somebody was with you? Yeah. Or having all of a sudden feeling something like a peak experience, like so much love. I believe when we felt that years ago, I believe when I feel that today, that's future crystal or timeless crystal sending me a message back to now. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. yes. Oh my yeah, God. I, <laughs> yeah. It, I, and, and there is something so powerful about those moments when we realize what we can be doing. I think the very first time I got a broadcast from myself. I was maybe nine or 10, and I drew a picture of myself as maybe a 25 year old woman. And I really believe, like, and then I remember being that 25, 26 year old woman sending a broadcast back to that, that struggling with an eating disorder little girl. And, you know, and there's something so powerful about those moments of when do we send messages back to ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh my oh. gosh, yes. I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, before I let you go, how can people get in touch with you because I am sure that people, I mean, this has been such a juicy, yummy, delicious conversation. I'm imagining that there are people who are going to want to find out more about you, get more support from you like learn what you're doing. So how can we get in touch with you? Sure. Um, I think the place to start is my website, which is crystalancompton.com. And with an E, don't forget that E, it's important, crystalancompton.com. Um, I also have a YouTube channel with, um, I think, almost 800 videos. I've been making spiritual and metaphysical content for about a decade now. Um, and so if you want to learn about anything, angels, meditation, dimensions, or frequency, it's all over there. Mm-hmm. So check out my videos. Um, I do have a class coming up. It's funny that we're talking about this in December, hopefully, I think it's in December, um, where we're going to be doing ancestral stuff. We're going to be doing timeline stuff. That's a real focus of stuff of what I do, going back in the timeline and freeing things up and also connecting with your future self, who is vibrating at like this highest level of all the things you came here to do connecting to her and then pulling yourself into alignment with that trajectory. So we're going to be doing some super magic, awesome things in this cord cutting and timeline workshop, which is taking place in December. And you can learn all about that and so much more at crystallinecompton.com. <laughs> so you guys, it will be in the show notes. You will be able to find, you will be able to find that information by coming on over to empathicmastery.com and again crystal and with an e compton.com crystal and what an amazing conversation this Truly. was just so delicious it was it was just it was medicine for my soul i just really really appreciate the groundedness and also the scholarship that you bring to this you know well, thank you like Clearly, you have spent time with scripture. Clearly, you have spent time reading the books. Like, 
you're not just parroting stuff, you have integrated it. And it's just such a pleasure to be talking to you and to be hearing, to receive your wisdom. Thank you. Thank thank you. you. I I feel the same about you. I think we could have taken any one of these subjects and we could have expanded it for a full hour. So maybe we should come, I should come back at some point in the future and we could take one of these topics and we can kind of really drill down into it. I want to do timelines. Like I really, and, and the thing is, it's like you and I, it seems to me that you and I are being called to do such similar work in terms Mm -hmm. of, in terms of ancestral work, in terms of timelines, in terms of like accessing, you know, the aligned futures, like so much, like we might be using slightly different language, but very, very similar. I mean, and how many people do you meet that were Pentecostal and Unitarian Universalist in their life? It's kind of, we have a lot in common. It's really Well, I was not personally ever a Pentecostal. I was a graduate. So I was in a graduate school. Okay, got you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Just to clarify, I was in a graduate school surrounded by Pentecostals. That's right. Okay. And I, but I talked with a lot of Pentecostals and I connected with a lot of Pentecostals and I, and I have, I've always been around I've always been around a lot of people who are infused with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but no, I was, I was personally very, very lucky in that I was not raised in organized religion until I was nine. And I kind of never had to drink the Kool-Aid. So That's I'm good. incredibly <laughs> grateful for that. Yeah. Still so much but in common. Yeah, so okay. much in common. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot in common. And Oh, thank you for such a rich conversation. Thank you for oh, just everything. This has been so good. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, three basics for finding calm in the eye of the storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your Empathic Safety Guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.